Now, just a couple weeks ago, I saw a news story come up on my feed as I was studying this passage, and I found it quite interesting and related. If you know who John Lennon was, he's one of the Beatles, huge rock star, very famous, but he was shockingly killed back in 1980. Now, his murderer, Mark David Chapman, just a couple weeks ago, was denied parole for the 12th time. That means he was denied a a conditional release. Sometimes they do this where they release even a person who's committed first-degree murder. Um, They give them parole. But even as his case was up for review and potential parole was considered, They decided not to release him, and they've done this 12 times now. Now, since the murder, Chapman has said that he found Jesus. He said that he has grown in his shame and remorse for his actions. But reasons he has been denied parole include the safety of Yoko Ono, who is John's wife or partner, and the safety of John's children. And even Chapman's own safety, as the authorities fear what fans of John Lennon might do to Mark David Chapman if he got out. So the courts consider all these factors in deciding whether he should be released. Now, a story like that may bring questions to our mind. Questions about justice and the value of human life. Questions about what should be done to a person who commits murder? Should they be released from prison? For what reason? Should the murderer's life be protected? This kind of thing happens all the time, but it brings out questions about justice. In Joshua 20, we see that God is concerned about justice and these questions surrounding the taking of life. He deliberately directed Joshua to allot six cities of refuge within the land of Canaan that the people of God were just inheriting. These cities of refuge were specifically designated areas that a manslayer could go to while his case was being decided so that his life was not taken unjustly. From this passage, I want to consider three main points. God's justice and the cities of refuge God's justice and the value of life, and God's justice and our salvation. First of all, God's justice and the cities of refuge. As we look at this passage, there are two main sections. Verses 1 to 6 contain direction regarding the cities of refuge. Then verses 7 to 9 contain the allotment of the cities. The first section breaks down further. We see a general direction in verses 1 to 3. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So they were to appoint these cities, which Moses already spoke about before. There are four main sections in the Pentateuch, dealing with these cities. We won't look at them all, but Exodus 21, 12 to 14, Numbers 35, 9 to 34, Deuteronomy 4, 41 to 43, and Deuteronomy 19, 
1 to 13. So the people were already prepared beforehand with this idea that there would be cities of refuge in the land of Canaan. You can tell that this was actually an important priority for God, that these cities be set up. And the purpose for them here is spelled out. It is for the protection of the manslayer, a person who strikes someone else without intent or unknowingly. This was a person involved in an unintentional killing of another. Now, this is where it may get confusing because in Canada, the word manslayer refers to something a bit different. In legal terms here, a manslayer is someone who takes the life of someone as the result of some unlawful activity, even though it wasn't their intention to kill that person. So one example I saw was two drug addicts. They, the one man shot up the other man with a drug and he ended up dying. It was not his intent to kill that man, but still it was the result of unlawful, unsafe activity that this man died. Or another example would be someone possibly who kills another by drinking and driving or texting and driving. This is manslaying in our country. But here, manslayer means someone who in a completely random, accidental scenario was the cause of someone's death. And Deuteronomy 19, 4-5 gives us a good example of this. He says, if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So in modern times, we may think of maybe a hunting accident or something like that, a completely unintentional and random instance Since this person is not really guilty of anything, he is then offered protection within one of the cities from the avenger of blood. That's a term mentioned here. Now, who is the avenger of blood? Well, the term here, avenger, is actually the Hebrew word goel, which elsewhere can refer to a number of types of people, but a a kinsman someone in someone's family who would act as a redeemer. Probably the biggest example we think of in the Old Testament is Boaz. He was a goel, a kinsman redeemer. He redeemed his uh, family's line by marrying Ruth. That's a goel, it's a redeemer. But here is a redeemer of blood or an avenger of blood. In the time of the Old Testament, we have to understand, one's responsibility to his family was a huge value, something they lived by in that culture. In the case of a murder then, it was the deceased person's family that was tasked with enforcing the sentence upon him. If the proper courts decided the killer was guilty of murder, then this person within the family, the redeemer of blood, would go after him and enforce the sentence of death. And if you think about it for a moment, this seems to make sense, doesn't it? The robbery, the 
injustice, the loss and grief imposed on a family when someone in their family was lost in this way was huge. And so the family member taking the life of this person would bring great closure. Nevertheless, a pretty foreign idea to us. But in the case of an innocent manslayer, he was provided with this opportunity to flee for refuge, for asylum, away from the avenger of blood. And it seems to be assumed that, this, that sometimes the redeemer of blood would get carried away and even kill the man before the verdict was out. This is why cities were needed all across Israel. So wherever this incident occurred, there would be a nearby city that someone could quickly flee to. And there was a protocol for these cities. We read in verses 4 to 5, it says, He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past." So his case would be explained to a kind of court within the city gate by the elders of that city. And he would be taken in and live in that city. And so there was this provision of protection for the manslayer. But in a sense also a penalty. This man could not return to his own home. He had to stay in this other city. And it says here in Numbers 35, 26, another passage relating to this. It says, if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. If he ever went outside of that city... There was no protection. He was no longer safe. And that redeemer of blood could kill him and not be guilty of an offense. So the only safety was inside that city of refuge. He had to abide by that condition. And then in verse 6, we see the condition of release. It says, and he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. And so there would be this congregation, this assembly, which was made up of adult men or chieftains who helped in the trial, they would consider all the evidence and decide whether the man was guilty or not. And if he was guilty, he would be given the death penalty. If he was not guilty, he would continue to live in that city of refuge until the death of the current high priest. Now, what is that all about? The death of the high priest somehow affected the release of this man from the city of refuge. Well, it seems that in order for the manslayer to be fully released and absolved and able to go back to his home, someone had to die. Someone had to die. There had to be an exchange of life for life. A life was taken, even if accidentally. 
but someone had to die. And so this high priest, acting as sort of a representative of all Israel, who would go before the Lord, representing the people, atoning for their intentional and unintentional sins, he could make atonement, in a sense, when he died. And so his death would affect the release of this manslayer. He could go free and go to his own home in his own town. The second section here breaks down into two sections. The list of cities in verses 7 to 8, and then the purpose of cities in 20 verse 9. There were three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the Cisjordan, on this side of the Jordan. And again, the purpose of these cities is reiterated in verse 9. It says, these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. And so we see here all people, whether native Israelite or foreigner, were guaranteed this right to use the city of refuge and a right to a proper trial. Friends, this whole passage shows us the value God places on justice. When God brought his people into a land that was to be guided by his own rules, his own laws, he ensured that justice would reign in the land of Canaan. He is a just God. And part of this justice is that the right penalties for crimes were to be administered. A just penalty is a penalty that fits the crime. Now, this is a big concern in our world today, too, isn't it? We hear a lot, I think, about justice. Or maybe you've heard the term social justice before. Well, whether well-motivated or not, whether what people are talking about as justice is really justice, people are invested in this idea. There's much talk, for instance, these days about racial justice. And even one new one I heard of lately reproductive justice. People talk about reproductive rights, which really to them means the right to kill an innocent person. You can see in our society, we've, we've gone sideways on the issue of justice. Though we're concerned about it, the problem is people are trying to define justice apart from God and his righteous standard. We have to understand that justice must be defined by God's own character and law. Justice is just God's righteousness acted upon. It's when reality aligns with God's standard. And so the laws here for cities of refuge were just because God was the one giving these laws according to his righteous character. The scriptures say of God in Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
And in Isaiah 11:4, a prophecy of Christ, it said, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Thomas Watson says, God's justice is the rectitude of his nature. It's just according to his very own nature, whereby he is carried to the doing of that which is righteous and equal. We see that in the Bible, God's justice has many branches, many evidences. He shows his justice in rewarding the righteous, in punishing the wicked, in giving people their rights, and in showing no partiality. And in this passage specifically then, we see God's justice applied to the value of life. This is my second point here. Maybe we could start with a controversial question. What do you all think of the death penalty? What do you think about capital punishment? This is a controversial question today. Most countries in the modern Western world have phased out the death penalty or are in the process of phasing it out. In the United States, there are still a number of states that can administer the death penalty. But in Canada, there is no longer any death penalty for any crime. Rather, we focus on an imprisonment system for murderers. And there is opportunity for parole for murderers after a certain number of years and conditions have been met. But God's word, if we look to scripture, it clearly advocates for capital punishment or the death penalty. See, the manslayer, if he came out of that city of refuge, he... He could be killed and there was no sentence meted out on the avenger of blood. If he was found guilty, he was to be put to death. God's word clearly advocates for this. And this is not just some old covenant thing. This is not just a mosaic covenant thing. Yes, we're out from under the ceremonial and civil laws of the old covenant. But even if we go very way back to the very first page of the Bible, we see a very important truth. It says in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This means at least two things that human beings were, first of all, made to reflect God and his character and nature and also to represent him in the world. And it is clear that our image bearing of God brings to us value. The infinitely valuable creator has stamped his image upon human beings. And so human beings have intrinsic value and worth and dignity. And then we see in Genesis 9, verse 5 to 6, again, long before the covenant with Moses, we see this command given to Noah and all the people of the earth as this covenant was made with the whole world through Noah. It says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
You see the value of human life there. And as a result of that value, that people are made in the image of God, if someone kills a human being, their own blood ought to be shed. They are to be put to death. Even a beast who kills someone is to be put to death. We were in Jasper this summer and a bear came through the place where we were staying actually and it didn't kill anyone, uh, any person, but it actually killed someone's pet dog. And so the officers there, the park rangers, were going after this bear. They were going to kill it, rightly so. But how much more ought that sort of sentence to be performed upon someone who kills another person? Murder is against God's law. This is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And the penalty for it is the death of the one who committed the murder. This is because there must be equal payment for the damage done. In Leviticus 24, 17 to 22, it says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Numbers 35, 33 reiterates this. It says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, For the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. My Old Testament professor once told us a story. I'm not sure if this happened to him or someone else. Obviously, it was some kind of prison ministry. This person went into a prison and they watched some interaction between inmates. And these inmates in there, obviously for various crimes, lined up for lunch, and there was uh, sandwiches on the table. And there were two men left. And as the, the, the man in front approached the, the, the last sandwich on the table, the man behind him said, do not take that sandwich. If you take that sandwich, I will kill you. I'm already in here for life. I can kill you without consequence. Now, the very fact that that kind of scenario could happen shows that an absence of the death penalty is wrong. It makes human life of no value. The only proper penalty in the case of murder is death. And this solves all the issues that come with parole, doesn't it? Countless people are continually dealing with trauma. Family members of people who have died are brought into court again and again. and They have to consider that the person who killed their family member might come out someday. But when the death penalty is administered, there is no opportunity for that person to again recommit that crime. And it indeed should deter that kind of crime. And so the proper Christian position is that capital punishment would be upheld in a just society since it recognizes the worth of human life made in the image of God. 
Yet we also have the truth in Scripture that even murderers can be forgiven by God, don't we? David in Psalm 51 asks for God to cleanse him from blood guiltiness. He had murdered Uriah, his very own friend, to be with his wife Bathsheba. This was King David, a man after God's own heart, but a sinner still, committed a grievous sin, and God forgave him. God had mercy upon him. We know that murderers can find mercy in Christ, and yet the earthly consequence must be upheld if human life is to mean anything. But what about an unintentional killing as we see here? Obviously, that man would not be guilty, and so he does not deserve death. There was no intentionality. It was simply an accident. He did not murder this person out of anger. So that kind of person's life ought to be protected. At the same time, God recognizes that there is such a loss there that if, if the avenger of blood kills this man, he would not be guilty. But God ensures as much as possible that justice would be upheld in the land of Israel by the use of a wise and democratic court system. The elders of the city would examine each case that would be followed by a trial by the assembly. Much like our court system, there are multiple checks and balances to try to ensure that the right verdict is reached. And elsewhere we learn in the Old Testament that there had to be the evidence of two or three witnesses to convict someone of murder. Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15. Now at this point, I just want to bring this home in a couple ways. First of all, we should recognize that we do live in an unjust society in some ways. I'm not saying Canada's as bad as many other countries in the world. We, we have it so good in so many ways. But nevertheless, there is injustice here. We live in a culture that does not value human life as made in God's image. Because we've rejected the idea that God is our creator. And so we lose with that. The value of human life. Sure, most people still walk around with an assumption that their life is valuable. They value their own life. If they're injured, they might sue someone. If a family member is murdered, there would be a cry for justice. But we do not uphold the death penalty. We allow abortion and in fact enshrine this and ensure this as a right we are moving rapidly in this area of euthanasia or assisted suicide, where it's becoming increasingly unrestricted. And in March 2023, a new law is coming into effect, allowing people who are diagnosed with mental illnesses to ask for assisted suicide. So really, you just have to be diagnosed that you have depression, you have anxiety, and then you are able to Get the help of someone to kill your own life. There is an increasing culture of death in our society. It is unjust. And this ought to concern us as people who love our neighbors, who love God, who love his righteousness, who love justice, who hate what he hates and love what he loves. This this ought to be our conviction that 
God's justice ought to be enshrined in this society. Just as William Wilberforce in England fought against slavery because he loved his neighbor. He loved justice. He served a just God. And so he worked and prayed to end the slave trade in England. But secondly, we are called to be salt and light and a witness in the midst of this society. Christians ought to be markedly different in this world, not an unjust people, but actually the church is a society within societies that ought to be run according to God's standard of righteousness. And we ought to be a witness, a a light and salt in this world, speaking loudly and joyfully on these matters, showing the world that there is value to every single human life. We ought to speak the truth to those who are lost and confused on these issues. And as much as possible or permissible in each one's given station and calling in life, we ought to be voices to the government and to wider society on issues of life and justice. It is not a bad thing for us to be involved in protests or petitions or campaigns, raising awareness on the injustice of some of the things that go on in our society. ARPA, as I mentioned, is a great organization doing that very thing. But at the same time, we have to remember that our mission is not simply to change our society as Christians. It's actually to advance the gospel in the whole world. It's to make disciples of all nations. It's to bring the gospel to bear so that people would repent and believe in Jesus Christ And so obtain new life in the kingdom of God. The church ought then to pray for our nation, but pray even more so for the effectiveness and fruitfulness of our mission within it. Thirdly, though, these kinds of issues, and when we see the injustice in our world, this ought to make us long for a more glorious inheritance, a better country. See, Israel's Canaan was meant to be a just land. God would have given them a just society if they would only live by his law within it. But we know they failed to keep his law. We know that even in our own land, even in this present evil age, there will always be a mixture of injustice with justice. There's sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one, all growing up till Jesus returns to bring about a world of righteousness. To pine for utopia on earth is a fruitless exercise. Rather, Scripture tells us we are strangers and exiles in this world. Like those people of old Abraham who wandered across Canaan, he never had that place as a permanent possession. Rather, he was looking forward to a better country that is a heavenly one, a city with foundations. As Second Peter 3.13 says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so friends, we work for justice We are a voice of truth within society. We advance the gospel. We make disciples, but all the while looking forward 
to our home in which righteousness dwells. That is our inheritance through Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you will inherit the earth. And that earth will be full of justice. But thirdly, I want to relate this chapter of the Bible and God's justice revealed in it to our salvation in Christ. Throughout the Bible, God is revealed to us as a just God. He must uphold his righteousness. Exodus 34, 7 says he will by no means clear the guilty. He is the just judge who rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked and shows no partiality. Before his judgment seat, all men and women are equal. And he sees all. He does not need two or three witnesses. He himself sees everything that we have done, all our sins, laid before him. And we will have to stand before him and he will give to everyone according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 21.8 says specifically, he will judge and punish murderers in hell. When we have sinned against an eternal God that merits an eternal punishment away from him forever. But his standard reaches further than just the outward action of murder, doesn't it? Earthly courts are not allowed to judge the heart. But in God's courtroom, he will open up our heart like an open heart surgeon. He can look in, into the inner man, the inner being, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, the desires. He'll hold us accountable for our words as well as our actions, the very thoughts of our heart. And Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 to 26 tells us, that even to be angry with your neighbor or your brother in your heart, or even to call someone by a bad name, is the seed and root of murder, and it is indeed murder of the heart. Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus says, it's from the heart that murders proceed. We all carry with us this fountain of evil within and if you have ever hated someone, if you've ever been angry at someone, then you know what it is to murder that person in your heart. If you've been angry with your children or your husband or your wife or a family member, if you've slandered someone or gossiped with your tongue like a venomous snake, if you have wrathful, vengeful desires against people, if you have bitterness stored up in your heart like poison in a vial, God says you are culpable and guilty under his searching law. And there are no dark corners of your heart that the God of light does not see. If we are to be judged by God strictly then, we would all be justly, rightly condemned. But friends, the Bible tells us that God is both just and, at the same time, the justifier of the ungodly. He really is the avenger of blood and yet a city of refuge for sinners. 
He is the God who avenges blood. He is the redeemer of blood, the great Goel. He is tasked with administering justice according to his own law. Indeed, judgment is given over into the hands of the Son, Jesus Christ, who will one day tread the winepress of God's fury, the blood of men and women and kings and great ones of the earth, slave and free. He will come in judgment to tread that out. He is the one who hunts down every sin. He is the one who lies in wait to strike down those who live unjustly. All murderers of hand and mouth and heart must fear this God. He is an avenger of blood. Some of you come here week by week, and I wonder if you've ever really considered this truth, that you yourself are guilty before a holy God. Have you considered that? Do you know that God is a God of vengeance? He will get revenge. He will bring just retribution against all sin. He is the great avenger of blood. But friends, at the same time, Scripture tells us that God's salvation is a city of refuge even for guilty sinners like you and me. Isaiah 26.1 says, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Isaiah 26.20 says, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. This God who is the avenger of blood is also a city of refuge that you can run into. You can find safety from his own judgment. He provides asylum for repentant sinners, which really, friends, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our refuge, the mighty cross. This is the only refuge. This is the designated place that sinners can run into and find protection from the judgment of God. If you once go outside of Christ, you are not safe. But under the cross, there is safety from God's justice, from God's wrath, because Christ himself has been punished by his Father. God still acted as the avenger of blood, but he pointed his sword not at you and I, but at his Son, Jesus Christ. And it came down upon him. He avenged that blood. He gave Jesus the penalty of death that we deserved so that we might go free. And friends, Christ, just as this passage witnesses to us, he is the great high priest upon his death since he is our great representative, a new Adam, one that we can come and be united to by faith, he can stand in our place. He can take the penalty that we deserve so that we can go free. Upon his death, he effected the release of many so we could return home to our inheritance in God. 
Jesus Christ was innocent. And his life, friends, as the only begotten Son of God, was stamped with such eternal value and worth that he could die in the place of a countless multitude. The precious Son of God, the treasure of heaven, crucified. It's through him, through faith in him, through trusting in him alone in his cross work that we can flee from God's wrath and we can find a home in God. He is our refuge. And friend, if you have not yet come to Jesus Christ, again, know this, there is no refuge outside of him. You one step outside of Christ, there is only the fearful expectation of judgment. But in him, there is hope of eternal life. May we all trust in our great kinsman, redeemer, our avenger of blood, God himself, our city of refuge through Jesus Christ, our priest. May we live justly, full of grace and love and mercy toward others as we have received such mercy, awaiting the day when he returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would use your word, you would plant it deep within us. Lord, that you would conform us to your image, make us more like Christ. God, we thank you that you have had mercy upon us, though we deserved eternal death before you. Lord, that you've done what we could never do through the cross. And so we thank you, Lord, we praise you. We long to show this mercy to others as well. We pray in Jesus' name.